Well, we are, this uh, Advent series, as I said earlier, we're going to be looking at passages in the Old Testament uh, that give this, that talk about big picture stuff. Um, not just the birth of Jesus, but uh, the big meaning of what the birth of Jesus is, the, uh, the, the rescue of the world, the, the, the ransoming of us from sin and death, uh, the reconciliation of us with God and the promise of an inter- a whole new eternal kingdom. We're going to be looking at all of those big picture things. And, all, and those big picture things are in the Bible. And they're in the Bible from the very beginning. If you know how to look. If you know what to look for. And so today we're going to look at um, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, I get to teach... Uh, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch in China once a year. I'll be going again this March. Uh, and this passage we're going over is one of my favorite passages to teach. And so I'm super excited today to encourage you with the power of God's word. So let's please stand if you're able. And we're going to read uh, the genealogy from Genesis chapter 5. Uh, it may seem like uh, kind of a dry list here, but as we get into it, I hope that you'll see it's much more than that. Uh, this is, let's listen intently together as we read God's inerrant and holy word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan for 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. And Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. And Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, 
This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, one of my favorite pictures, pieces of art pictures, is uh, it's a picture by a, an artist named Britton Rivere. Uh, he, it's called Daniel and the Lion's Den. It's actually a picture, it's two pictures together. One's called Daniel and the Lion's Den, and the other is called, the other is called uh, Daniel's Answer to the King. And it's pictures of that scene from the Bible where Daniel, the righteous man of God living in a pagan culture, uh, has made enemies with the other rulers and high people in the culture, and they've scheme against him and throw him into a lion's den to kill him and get rid of that nuisance. And what I love about the the picture is that it's just not overly dramatic. It's very lifelike. In the first picture, Daniel in the lion's den, it just has Daniel, he has his hands tied behind his back and he's just kind of standing. You You see it from the back and he's just standing there and he's just looking at this big group of lions looking back at him, almost as if he's sitting there looking at the lion saying, well, now what? (laughs) And you can see what's beautiful, what's amazing about it is on the lion's faces, you can see they don't know. (laughs) These lions who have been raised to eat human flesh are looking at him with perplexed, they're perplexed. They don't know what to do next. They're just looking at him. And what I love about it is Daniel's calm. You can just see in the picture that for Daniel, he's just not tripping at all. And in the second picture, Second picture, Daniel's answer to the king is a scene from the next morning where Daniel is now looking up uh, out of the, the door, the shaft of light up from the top of this chamber, waiting uh, and speaking to the king, answering him, yep, I'm still down here. And the lions are now behind him, but the lions are in the same pose, still perplexed, still not knowing quite what to do. Daniel's still as calm as ever. And I love, that, I love that picture because it shows Daniel, uh, it shows a picture of Daniel that we can learn from. Daniel is really the ultimate picture in the Bible uh, of someone that has just gone through the decimation of, of godly culture and has now been placed by himself in the middle of pagan culture. His civilization was completely destroyed. He was taken captive, taken as hostage to a foreign country, and he's now by himself serving in that foreign country, surrounded by pagan culture, pagan literature, pagan religion. And he is a total, he's a picture of someone who has just gone through the downfall and hardship and, and, and is now practicing their faith in a hostile culture. And what I love about the picture is is that for the evil men that threw Daniel in that, in that tank, uh, from their perspective, from a worldly perspective, it looked like it was utter ruin for Daniel. That he had gone, now he had reached the last phase of that decline from power in Jerusalem to now he had been thrown into a pit of hungry lions who have been trained since birth to eat people And if you get thrown into a pit like that, you are pretty much done. To them, to the evil men against him, it looked like utter ruin and defeat. But in Daniel's perspective, in his calmness in that 
portrayed in that picture, it was, you could see it was just really nothing more than an inconvenience. Really nothing more than a night away from his own bed because Daniel was looking at it from his supernatural perspective. He was able to see uh, that the lions, the evil men that betrayed him, the political system that ended up putting him in that place, all of it, none of it had any more power over him than God allowed. And so, if God rescued him from the pit and wanted to glorify himself through rescuing him from the lions, praise his holy name. But if God wanted to take him, wanted to take him home to glory, if God wanted to rescue Daniel from his exile and bring him into the glory of heaven, then praise his holy name. Uh, all Daniel had to do was worry about worshiping God and loving the people that God had put in front of him to serve, and he knew that God was going to take care of the rest, and it was going to be all good. Same events, two different perspectives looking at them. From a naturalistic perspective, utter ruin. From Daniel's perspective, no matter what happened, victory. And I think that as we, listen, what does that have to do with us? As we in the West, Christians in America, as we see the decline of Christianity from a position of cultural power and prominence and privilege and respect and respectability, we can all become fearful and afraid and worried about that. And I think we all feel it. I feel it. It can cause us to be anxious or depressed. Uh, even, even we can start tempt, being tempted to doubt God. Is this really true? How could God allow his people to lose so much power and safety in the world? We talked about the movie Silence uh, a few weeks ago in, in, in feudal Japan when the persecution became so brutal uh, that anyone who was left a Christian had to go deep, deep underground. And the question that that novel was silence meant the silence of God. And there were people who, who that period of history of the persecution of Japanese citizens in feudal Japan that was so awful, that period of history is their prima facie evidence that Christianity is false. Because God, if God is God, would never allow, could never allow his people to suffer that much and to lose that much power and credibility in culture. And so when we see it happening to us, we can be afraid. What if God isn't there? As the cathedrals become museums, as churches become mosques and nightclubs across the West, we can be really tempted to think, man, are we being idiots? Are we being foolish? Are we, as some people say, evil? Even? Are we the stumbling block standing in the way of liberty and freedom for people? Maybe we are fools and God's just not even there. And if you look at it from a purely natural perspective, like those evil men that threw Daniel in the lion's pit, uh, we are losing the war. We are fighting a long defeat. 
Uh, but if we look at things from a supernatural perspective, then we can see, even as Daniel saw, that God is in perfect control, that God's promises are absolutely true, uh, and that no matter how dark or how bleak it may get, or no matter what happens in the world, we can know that at the end of the story, at the end of our story, God is going to do what God delights in doing so often, just like running the clock out until there's no hope left, and then when you least expect it, turning the tables on everybody and bringing victory out of the long defeat. And so that is what this chapter is really about. It's not just a genealogy. It's also what the whole story of the Bible is about, and it certainly is our story as well. The big lesson that this passage is trying to teach us is that as we fight the long defeat, we can know that God's promises are true and that Jesus has won the victory over the world. As we fight the long defeat, we can know that God's promises are true and that Jesus has won the victory over the world. Let's look at that. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, the as we fight the long defeat. Uh, over the last year or so, you've been being barraged with Harry Potter illustrations because I was reading Harry Potter series to my kids. And so now we're reading Lord of the Rings, so sorry, but <laughs> you're about to be barraged with Lord of the Rings illustrations. And <laughs> uh, there's this, this wonderful line, there's this, actually this concept that's woven all through the books, uh, all through the Lord of the Ring books. In the Fellowship of the Ring, the elven queen Galadriel, in reminiscing about the fate of Middle-earth, she says this, this stunning line. She says, Together, through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. And what they are saying is, from the elven perspective, as the perspective of immortal beings who would be leaving the world, they are seeing the world as descending into darkness uh, slowly but surely coming under the shadow of evil. And they had chosen to stay and fight that evil, even though they knew that it was a long defeat. But it's also the story of the individual people in the books who are constantly making decisions for compassion and decisions to love and decisions to, to show kindness, even when they know those decisions are going to destroy them even though they know that they are in the midst of fighting this long defeat, they continue to hold on to goodness and to truth and to beauty, no matter what it may cost them in the world, because they know not only that that's the right thing to do, but they know that that is the source of power in the midst of a long defeat. There's one commentator on this concept in the books that says this. It says, it says, the long, it says that what these people displayed was a love unrestrained by worldly success or ambition. A love unrestrained by worldly success or ambition. As Tolkien's Middle-earth slowly fell under the shadow, good people suffered and diminished because they refused to join the darkness. Uh, and in the midst of the long defeat, that was their victory. And that is really the story of this chapter. This chapter is the story 
of the first long defeat in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. There's two verses that show you what's going on here underneath the surface. The beginning, first verse is, four, verse is Genesis 4.25. That's right before this chapter. Uh, which starts right after, a, there's a small genealogy of Cain, the evil son of Adam and Eve. There's a, a genealogy and a story of his people group beginning to spread across the earth. And then it comes into, then it says this verse. And then it says, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed. Seth sounds like the word appointed. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we can discern from that that there is this one people group, the descendants of Cain that are spreading across the world, spreading across the world in evil. And then there's another basic people group, these descendants of Seth, who are worshiping, calling upon the name of the Lord. Theologians call them the Sethite altar communities. They're building altars. They're worshiping the true God. They represent the people on earth that are worshiping God and opposed to them is this other group of people, the descendants of Cain, who are worshiping evil. Second verse, second verse that tells us what's happening here is this. It's in Genesis 6, right after this story. I'm going to read the NLT version because it really brings it out. It says, talks about Noah, and it says, Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. What that says, what that says is Noah was the last righteous man on the earth. Noah was the last man on earth who still worshipped God. What happened? What happened between those two verses that left Noah as the very last man who worshipped God on earth? And the answer to that, we know from studying, we can look at Genesis chapter 4 and the story of Lamech, the first evil king. We can put that together with Genesis 6, the story of the flood and other various parts of the Bible. And we can see that what happened to them was a systematic persecution and then annihilation, genocide of the people who worshiped God until only Noah and his family were left. That's what happened to them. Everybody not just driven deep underground, eliminated, wiped off, off the face of the earth. Uh, which is the beginning of a constant theme in the Bible that, that says that those who want to be God must destroy that which reminds them that they are not. And that theme repeats itself over and over again through the text as evil tries to annihilate God's people and as God, in his amazing ability at the last moment, turns the tables and brings victory. Uh, So what does that have to do with us, right? You know, I'm thinking about that story, not just the people in it, right? But you're hearing the story of all these generations and then we put that together with knowing what happened to them during this period of time, all-out persecution and genocide of God's people until there was only one man left. And I imagine, I know, we know, 
that through that process, there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of hand-wringing as things started to go south. You know, in Noah's day, at some point along that time, they took prayer out of public school. Some point in that time of their long defeat, homeschooling was completely outlawed. And then the faith itself was made illegal. Uh, And then it got even worse than that. It got even worse than that. People were ostracized from society, began to have a low social status instead of a high social status. And then things probably became like they are in China right now where Christianity or the faith of worshiping God was completely illegal and you ran the risk of at any time being arrested and taken off to prison and then probably at some point in time it got to how things are in North Korea where you would definitely be arrested and possibly even executed and then it got to the point where it's like in Somalia where you would most likely be shot on sight And during that period, can you imagine the anxiety? Far beyond anything that we've experienced. Far beyond anything that we've experienced. And all the time they were thinking, they had to have been thinking, what is going on? Where is God in all of this? How could God allow this to happen to us? How could God allow his people to be losing so much power in the world, to be under so much persecution? Is God silent? Is he even there? Is this not proof that God doesn't even exist, as many people say? What's going to happen to us? And the question that we ask, what if it keeps getting worse? What's going to happen to our kids? And the reality check is, if it's history is any judge, it probably will get worse. And so what do we do? What do you hold on to in the middle of all that? What do we hold on to? What gives us strength to continue to fight the long defeat, to continue to act in love and care and compassion towards even our enemies, even especially our enemies, as Christ has commanded us to do. What gives us the power to continue to worship God, to know that his promises are true, and because of that, give us the ability to continue to love our enemies in the midst of fighting that long defeat. How do we know that God's promises are true? That's the second part. How do we know that God's promises are true? If you go to any, stand, or any uh, uh, university, secular university, and you take a Bible class, or you go to the religious department, take an introduction to the Bible class, what you're going to get, basically, is a professor that tells you that the Bible is essentially kind of a rough cut-and-paste job of a bunch of old stories and mythologies that were kind of haphazardly put together, edited, re-edited, and then reinterpreted by later religious, uh, religiously minded people to try to make sense of the world, to try to make sense of, especially in Israel, why has God kicked us out of our land? Why are we in exile? What hope do we have? For example, you'll hear of things like uh, even the original creation story of Adam and Eve isn't really about a creation. It's about the shift 
Originally, it was a mythology about the shift of people from a hunter-gatherer community into an agricultural community, but then over time, that was re-edited and then placed into this narrative where religious philosophers reinterpreted the meaning to be the creation of the earth and things like that uh, within it. So what do we do? What do we do with things like that? Of What's part of the attack that's trying to dismantle Christianity in the West? And, and the solution, there's arguments against all of those things, good arguments against all those things, but if you get into them, you quickly get into the weeds, putting out little tiny fires here and there, and they just keep coming. There's no shortage of arguments of, of, of hypothetical probability and deniable, you know, plausible deniability that people stack up against the greater theme of the Bible. And the solution to that is the internal strength of the Bible itself. Now, if you were to build, say, a giant retaining wall of concrete, inside that concrete there would be rebar. That is eter- internal strength that you can't see within the concrete, but it's there holding it together and holding it together in strength. And that is what, that's what we're called to look at in the Bible to let us know that God's promises are, in fact, absolutely true. And that's what we see here in this genealogy. Now, I'm going to go through this with these names with you, okay? And I'm going to promise, I'm going to make a vow to not geek out in Hebrew too much, okay? Niebuhr needs to hold me accountable, if I start to geek out too much, let me know. Uh, but we're gonna ha- I need to go through and explain these names to you because it's a super important part of what I'm about to say. So I need everybody to take a deep breath, put your thinking caps on, and pay attention. It'll be quick, and I promise it's going to have a payoff, okay? But we need to just think. Think with me now, okay? In our culture, names don't really mean anything. Or at least we don't know what the meaning of the name is. Bob means Bob. Bill means Bill. Frank means Frank. We don't know what those names mean. They have meaning, but we don't know what they are anymore. In Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, that's totally not true. Everyone's name had a meaning and everyone knew what it was. For example, Jesus means God is our salvation. Uh, We can see even in this genealogy here, there's some other examples that Seth means appointed. She says, Eve says that she names him Seth because God had appointed her son. Uh, We know... um, Several examples of this throughout the Bible. And not only that, but these meanings often had prophetic meanings. They were, they were names that fathers gave the children after receiving prophecy uh, from the Lord that told of a future event. And that child then became significant in his name. And so here, let me go to read through uh, these names that are in this genealogy and show you the prophetic meaning of them. So you can see... It'll, it'll really help us to see how these people were fighting the long defeat, but it'll also tell us something else. So here we go. Ready? Thinking caps. Adam means, Hebrew students, Adam means man or mankind, okay? <clears throat> Seth, from a Hebrew word, sheth, which really means, it means appointed. Genesis 4.25 uh, uh, lets us know that. But uh, Enosh comes from a Hebrew word, Anash, which means mortal, frail, or miserable. Kenan from, from Hebrew root, kinah, which means sorrow or lamentation. Uh, Mahalalel is two words, mahal, 
plus El. El is the name of God, and Mahal means the blessed. So his name really means the blessed God. <clears throat> uh, Jared comes from a Hebrew, a Hebrew verb, uh, Yarad, which means, which means come down. It means he will come down. Uh, and Enoch, Enoch means, uh, is from a Hebrew word, Chanach, which means teaching. And you can ask yourself the question, teaching what? And here's where things start to get interesting, right? Uh, we know from Jude, uh, from the book of Jude, New Testament Jude, that Enoch was an apop- apocalyptic preacher of righteousness. He was preaching about the coming flood to his generation, which shows us that these men in this, in this genealogy, at least from the fourth generation out, and probably all of them were speaking truth into their culture and being rejected for it and, prob- and shut down for it. They were, in fact, speaking truth and love and fighting the long defeat. Uh, and so Enoch, Shanach teaching, we know from Jude, means that Enoch was teaching about the coming flood. Uh, and then Methuselah is two words, Muth, which means death, and, um, and Shalach, which means together his death shall bring. And here's the interesting part. If you do the math of Methuselah, from you, all the math and the numbers are in there, you see from when he was born, he died the year the flood came, which means his father received a prophecy. His father was also a preacher of righteousness, and he named his son that when he dies, the flood will come, essentially. Uh, And so Methuselah, his death shall bring. He also has the longest lifespan in all the history of the Bible, which is really a picture of God's forbearance and long-suffering with man on earth. Uh, and then uh, Lamech. Lamech is from a, a Hebrew word, makach, uh, which is a verb which means to be low, to be humiliated. Really, it means to be brought low, and it spoke of the wicked, those who are wicked brought low by sin. Uh, and, then, and, and it's interesting that Lamech prays for relief when he names his son Noah, it's a prayer to God saying, this son of mine will bring us relief from our suffering, from our being laid low. And then Noah, he names Noah, Noach, which means, from the Hebrew verb nacham, which means to bring rest or comfort. So the names in and of themselves, they're pretty interesting to see how those preachers were working, fighting the long defeat, Telling, teaching their, their generation things, uh, prophesying about, about the coming judgment. And that's all fantastic, right? I mean, individually. And so if I were to say them together to you, you know, if I were to read them in Hebrew, they wouldn't mean anything to you because most of us don't speak Hebrew, right? If I were to say, Adam Sheth Anashkina, Machalel Garad Shanach Muthshalach Lamach Nacham, you'd be like, so what? But if I were to say those same words in English, this is what you get. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God, he shall come down teaching. His death shall bring those who have been brought low by sin, comfort, and rest. Take that in for a minute. Coincidence? 
conspiracy of ancient Jewish rabbis to sneak the Christian gospel into the first five chapters of the Bible? Probably not. Maybe Christian uh, interposers, editors, after the fact, snuck that in without anybody knowing. Well, we have hard copies of this from 200 years before Jesus was born. That's not the case. You know, for those names to line up in that way with those meanings, you know, just think of the odds. Just imagine the odds for that to be coincidental. And you kind of have to walk away from it with the understanding that like it or not, there's a clear message of the Christian gospel that was embedded in the text of the very first long defeat in Genesis chapter 5. And then right after this is the story of the flood where God annihilated all of creation, saved Noah and his family through the judgment, and they come out on the other side in a new creation. And so because of that, in the first nine chapters of the Bible, you have a mini story of the whole story of God, the fall, redemption, and recreation. Creation, fall, fall, long defeat into wickedness, redemptive judgment, saved through judgment, Noah and his family embark into a whole new creation. The story of the Bible in the big form. Story of the Bible, again, embedded in the names of these patriarchs in Genesis chapter 5. So, however you slice it, like it or not, however you want to say that the Bible is a cut and paste nonsense job by a bunch of shepherds uh, that put together these religious ideas, you cannot get away from the fact that internally embedded in these texts is the message of the Christian gospel from God to us. And so what does this tell us? What's important about this for us to know? It lets us know that Jesus has won the victory over the world. Jesus has won the victory over the world. How does this help us to continue to love a world that grows increasingly hostile? Uh, I saw a a testimony of an American soldier online, and this man had converted to Islam. And the reason he converted to Islam is he told this story when he was on guard duty uh, at a gate in Iraq, and he was guarding the gate. A car rolls up. This Muslim man gets out of the car and starts approaching him at his guard post, and he puts up his rifle and starts commanding this man to stop. He's like, stop, I have to shoot you. Stop, I have to shoot you. He doesn't know if he's wearing a vest. He doesn't know if the guy's lost. But as those men come up to the guard posts, they're commanded to shoot. And he, for whatever reason, says, I couldn't do it. Maybe it was the look on the guy's face. I don't know. He was this big old smile, smiling at me as he walked up, reaching into his pocket and pulling out his paperwork. And he got up to me, and his paperwork was wrong. I told him he couldn't come in. And then I said, why did you keep coming? don't you know that I could have killed you? And the guy, he looks at him, big smile and broken English. He puts his finger up and he says, I only fear Allah. We could learn something from that guy. Right? Islam has a picture of the majesty, of the holiness, of the power of God that puts the American church to shame in our 
frivolous familiarity. God has called us to be father, but we also forget that he also calls us to remember that he is the all-powerful God of the universe. Now, I'm not saying that what that man believes in is true. What I am saying is there is nothing in the Quran like what I just read to you. There is nothing in the Quran like what I just read to you. And because of that, we of all people, no matter what is happening in the world around us, should be able to put our fingers up and say, we fear only God. What can man do to us? Nothing. Nothing. All of our privileges could be taken away. All of our wealth could be stripped from us. We could be driven deep underground into worship. Everything could be outlawed. We could be systematically executed. And all through it, we could be saying to ourselves, "Ah, we fear no one but God. What can man do to us? Nothing. Nothing can man do to us. The Bible never promises the church will have earthly power. The Bible never promises that the church will have high social status. In fact, when those things do happen, they are an aberration. They are the exception to the rule. For most of the history of the church, God's people have been despised. They have been outcast. They've been driven out and driven underground. And we just happen to have grown up in an amazing bubble of time in an amazing place where at one point Christianity, if you were a Christian, you were the man. Not anymore. And here's the thing. If we place our hope and our security in all of those worldly privileges and powers, as they begin to be stripped away in God's good providence, we will be afraid and we will begin to doubt God. But, if we know, if we understand that God never promised us to give victory in the world, but he did promise that Jesus has gotten victory over the world, then we can know we're safe. We can know we're safe. We can know that the story of the Bible from beginning to end in myriad ways, plain and hidden in plain sight, is the story of God overcoming the world through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins, which buys us a passage to transmigrate from this evil world into a world of beauty and power and light beyond our wildest imagination. That what looks like weakness and defeat to us and to people watching Uh, is nothing more than victory as the power of God transforms us. And if you want to join in on that journey with us, all you have to do is believe uh, that the blessed God, he came down by teaching by his death, you who have been laid low can find eternal Sabbath rest. And so what that means is we can be like Daniel. Daniel. We don't have to worry about anything. Maybe God will rescue us. And there'll be a revival beyond anything we've ever seen before in the world. And if that happens, we can say, praise his holy name. Or maybe 
God will want to display his power to the world and display his goodness and love through us as we continue to love those people God has put in front of us, even our enemies, as we fight the long defeat, knowing that we are even now tethered to an eternal realm that we cannot lose sight or hold of us. And if he does that, praise his holy name. Or maybe God will end our exile here. He will end our lonely exile here and bring us in to the reality that he's promised us, that he has made sure to us through, the preaching, through, the, to the, through his word and the preaching of it. And if he does that, praise his holy name. And no matter what happens, all we have to do is focus on worshiping God and loving the people he's put in front of us to serve. And we know that God's going to take care of all the rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are beautiful beyond description. And we love you and we praise you. Lord, you have given us assurances of promises that we would never believe. Because they're too good. They're too crazy good. And yet, you have in myriad ways placed them in the Bible in ways for us to see and also discover. So that we can know... But the Bible is your revelation. It is God from outside time and space speaking to us and revealing to us things that have not yet occurred so that we could know when they do happen that you are God and you can be trusted and that your word is your message to us and that in it, it tells us things that are beyond our wildest imagination. So Lord, we pray that we would see that and we would hold on to you as you hold on to us and that we would worship you without bending to the corrupt pressures of our culture that wants to make things that are good evil and evil good, that wants to convince us that hating people is actually love. We pray that you would help us to hold to the worship of you by recognizing what you have revealed to us through creation and through your word, giving you thanks, praising your eternal power and divine nature, and that we would dedicate our lives uh, not to clamoring for earthly things of the world that are being stripped away, but instead to look above and to clamor after a righteousness and a holiness and a closeness to you that will help us to overflow with the fountain of life, with rivers of living water, so that we might be a blessing to the least and the last and the lost that you have put in our place. Help us to do that, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.